Hey, Mountain Park Online family, Pastor Andrew here. It's been a few weeks, so it's great to be back together with you, although I would say, and I'm sure almost all of you do, how much I appreciated Pastor Brenda's leadership and her teaching over the last few weeks. We have an amazing staff all around, but Pastor Brenda does have a great gift uh, for preaching and teaching, and my own kids like her better than me. So uh, the other day, Simon even was uh, recollecting something that she had said in one of her messages, and I don't think, honestly, I've ever heard him do that with one of mine. So I'm joining with you in appreciation for Brenda, uh, and like you, maybe, she is actually, and I tell her this, she's like my favorite preacher. Between her and I, I prefer her preaching Anyway, so uh, I'm going to do my best to step back into her big shoes. I didn't mean that in an offensive or weird way. Anyway, let me just <laughs> move on. We are um, going to actually journey into a new direction here for the next little bit. Uh, Pastor Brenda's last message, she left us off in Ephesians 4. We've been in Ephesians for a long, long time. And I've been realizing more and more Paul's teaching in Ephesians is teaching about what is necessary for life, about how we should live. Um, I think there's a bit of a disconnect that uh, many of us are experiencing. We read Paul's teaching in uh, sort of the, the uh, what following Jesus must look like in our life, but we are at a loss to know how to actually do it. The thing is, right now, we're uh, over a year into this pandemic, and we're living in a time of great upheaval. There are significant troubles all around the world, socially, politically, uh, with our health, with our families. In the church world, there's worry, fear, stress, anxiousness. There's a heaviness that pervades our life, and worst of all, even our kids feel it. They may not be able to articulate what it is, but our kids are even kind of uh, sort of crumbling under the heaviness of this season. And the thing is that, uh, and sadly, I look at my own life and I look at the, the church, the body of Christ, and it doesn't seem to have a real answer for how to live in the way of Jesus under great pressure. It doesn't seem to be giving us a practical way to live. In fact, I've been reflecting on this, and I don't mean this in a critical way, but we are caught in the wake of a form of Christianity that many of us have grown up in, that is heavy on ideas, on intellect, on doctrine, which is really uh, necessary. The right belief about God is absolutely essential, but it's heavy on those things. It's heavy on theory. It's heavy on, uh, you know, an exegetical understanding of, you know, passages in Greek words, which is really, really good, but it's very light on how to apply and live the truth that we say we believe. The problem is we are living now in, in this world that is pressing in on every side. And many Christians don't know how to turn what they believe theoretically 
and in faith about Jesus into the substance of reality in their life. And if I can't do it, how in the world am I going to pass it on to my kids? Or how in the world am I going to be seen as an example of what it means to follow Jesus to my neighbors if I don't actually live in an integrated way the things that I have said I believe and I understand to be true? The thing is, our world is aching for relief. And many of you, many, many of you, I meet with you week in and week out. Our team meets with you. You're aching for relief from the burdens and the heaviness of life. But the problem is we don't know how to enter into what Jesus said is available for life. It's not your fault. I'm not blaming you. We just haven't learned how to do that together. So in the next number of weeks, we're going to study the Gospel of Matthew. The reason is I've been deeply reflecting on this and turning to this, practicing this in my own life, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. This is Jesus' famous words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We have heard that maybe a hundred times. But honestly, I want you to just reflect back on the last six months of your life. Would you say that that description of life, a life of rest, and peace, of, um, of easiness, as Jesus describes it, would you say that that has predominantly characterized your life? That most of your thinking life has been restful, your soul, would you say that your soul has been totally at rest and at peace and content? I think if you're honest and I'm honest, we could say probably not. So the reason we're studying the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to dip into the first seven chapters. The reason we're looking at Matthew, because Matthew's Gospel, more than any of the other ones, is an outline for how to live the way of Jesus in real life. How to experience his reality, the reality of Jesus, the reality of what Jesus just said in Matthew 11. How to experience it in our lives from moment to moment. One scholar says that Matthew is a manifesto for the followers of Jesus. N.T. Wright said this, Matthew defines the way of righteousness. And we're going to talk about Matthew's definition of that next week. It's interesting. That should characterize kingdom people. It is above all a teaching book about how to be a follower of Jesus. Until the end of the second century, for the first few hundred years of Christianity, Matthew was the preeminent gospel. It was read more, circulated more, copied more, and studied more than any other gospel. Matthew was not the first gospel written, even though it's the first in our New Testament. Most likely, Mark was the first gospel written. Matthew wasn't the first written, but it was the most widely studied and read. Why? Because in the early church, in the first few hundred years after the ascension of Jesus, in the early church, Matthew offered them 
the practical tools they needed to live as a minority in a hostile environment. The reason we're diving into Matthew is because more than any other gospel, when we dive into Matthew, when we kind of um, step into it fully, it offers us a practical way to live as followers of Jesus, how to apply what Jesus said into our life in reality. It offers us a practical way to live as a minority group. If you are a follower of Jesus, and you're not aware of this yet, let me clarify for you. You are a minority group in our culture and world and civilization today. If you live in Canada where I do, and you are a follower of Jesus, you are uh, antagonistically belittled by our government and our leaders. We are a minority group and we are living in a world and in a community, in a culture that's hostile to the way and the teachings of Jesus. So Matthew as a gospel not only teaches us what Jesus said, but Matthew gives us a practical way in to the kind of life and offer of Jesus we found in Matthew 11. The issue and problem for us is that we wanna believe the words Jesus spoke and we long to know how to find rest, how like we long to walk in each day with a soul that's at rest, but we don't have a great or real experience how to actually enter into that, how to actually take on the yoke of Jesus. The Christian life that I grew up with, that you grew up with, and I'm not blaming anyone here, the Christian life we grew up with and the Jesus that is a part of that and the Jesus that is sort of a representative to our culture and the broader body of Christ is becoming increasingly irrelevant for people. Many people are stepping out of the church because the Jesus that they have come into contact with in the church through the followers of Jesus is irrelevant to their life because he does not offer practical means of strengthening and living in a different way according to them. We have not shown people a great model for how to actually live the way Jesus did. I had this thought the other morning, we were in our staff meeting and it just came to me, this thought, I can't stand for what Jesus stood for. I can't stand for what he stood for unless I live the way he lived. And we've tried to actually separate these. We've tried to, in principle, stand for what Jesus stood for. But often it comes through the vehicle of a broken and dysfunctional life that is not characterized by the way that Jesus lived. And Matthew brings these two things together for us. Many of us and many in the church right now, their faith is being shaken. And they're asking the same question that John the Baptist did in Matthew 11 at the very beginning. So we read the end of the chapter, at the beginning of the chapter of Matthew 11. It says this, when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12, he went out to teach and preach in the towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, so John's in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So John's in jail and he's hearing about everything that Jesus is doing and he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, 
Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? This is the same John that baptized Jesus and saw the dove, the Holy Spirit, descend on Jesus, that heard the words of the Father, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The same John that recognized him earlier on as the Messiah is now going, I'm not sure, are you really the one we've been looking for? I think what's happening in John right now is he's rotting away in a jail, unjustly rotting away in a jail. When push has come to shove in John's life, his his faith is under pressure right now. And I think what's happening for John is he's saying, look, my life isn't gone the way I thought it was going to. The vision that I had of what Jesus was going to do in the world and in my life, the vision I had for my life is not working out. And I think what John is saying is what I see in Jesus is not what I was expecting. What I see in him, in his character, in the way that he works, in the way that he interacts, in the way that he carries himself, what I'm seeing in him is not what I was expecting the Messiah to be like. And we wonder, how could John have that, um, th- that tension or that rift between what he expected Jesus to, to do and to be like and what he was seeing and experiencing of him in reality? The thing is, John would have read his scriptures, the scriptures for John being our Old Testament. In Malachi 3, 1 and 2, it says, look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That's what John was saying. John was saying, look, I'm the one who is leading the way for Jesus, the Messiah. But then when the Messiah comes and John sees him in action, he's not sure anymore. His faith is wavering. And Malachi continues, then The Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? John would have been reading this. Who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. Isaiah 35, 4 says this, Say to those who with fearful hearts be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. These were descriptions of what would happen when the Messiah came. And the Old Testament was filled with them. Descriptions like this of the coming judgment and blessing that would accompany the Messiah. And John is looking at Jesus' life and he's looking at these Old Testament scriptures and he can't reconcile the two. He's having trouble. He's doubting. He's having a crisis of faith. Frederick Bruner, uh, who wrote a masterful commentary on Matthew, so good, says it this way. Why was John in doubt about Jesus? Because John's coming one, so Jesus or the Messiah, John's coming one in Matthew 3, we recall, was mainly a figure of power, a bringer of judgment, mainly a carrier of, and to use John's favorite word, fire, with an ax in one hand to chop down on fruitful trees and a shovel in the other hand to sift the chaff in his granary. There is good reason to wonder if Jesus, since 
chapter three of Matthew, and we'll get into this, fits John's fiery descriptions of him. In John's eyes, Jesus was from the very first a little baffling, a little strange, and less messianic than he expected. Jesus was less cataclysmic than John himself had even preached he would be. Bruner continues, this is a long quote, but it's really good. Furthermore, Jesus had not yet attacked any of the religious or relaining, or, or, sorry, Jesus had not yet attacked any of the reigning political or economic powers. In his miracles, he has simply picked up the evil pieces left by the evil forces. I'm just butchering this quote, sorry. Furthermore, Jesus has not yet attacked any of the reigning political or economic powers. In his miracles, he has simply picked up the pieces left by evil forces. Today, Jesus' work would be derisively called an ambulance ministry. Bruner continues, picking up the crushed victims of evil structures, but failing, listen to this, failing to combat head-on those evil structures themselves. Jesus will fight these structures, especially Pharisaism, but in his own way, Bruner says. Continuing on, Bruner says, meanwhile, he drives his ambulance around the province. In a word, Jesus is out in the sticks, healing the sick, insignificant little individuals here and there, but not doing much to change the basic structural problems in Israel's life. The Pharisees still control popular religious life. The Sadducees still control the temple. The whole religio-ideological system seems thoroughly unthreatened by Jesus' do-goodism in the hills. What is more, John, the propagandist of the new order, is in prison, and Herod, the embodiment of the evil, oppressive establishment, is still on the throne and is, in fact, about to have John's head. Bruner ends with this question, peering into the mind and the thought and the heart and emotion, probably, of John. What kind of Messiah is this? John expected a fiery powerful, messianic figure who would take on the evil, political, and religious structures of his day, dismantling them and bringing uh, freedom and bringing um, life and renewal and restoration to the nation of Israel, to the lives of the people of Israel through his toppling of the structures and systems of evil in his day. And John wasn't seeing Jesus do this. John was seeing a Jesus driving around, as Bruner says, in his ambulance in the back country hills of Judea, healing the lame and the sick and drawing near to those who were burdened and heavy laden, those who were suffering oppression and those who were um, cowering in fear and those who were living under the, the weight of a broken life. Jesus is drawing near to them, not attacking the political and religious structures of his day. John begins to realize and question 
his expectation of what the judgment and fire and blessing of the Messiah would look like because the way that Jesus was behaving in the world didn't line up with his expectation of what the Messiah would do. Jesus responds to John and he says and quotes Isaiah 35, and when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. Isaiah 29, in that day, the deaf will hear words read from a book and the blind will see through the gloom and darkness. The humble will be filled with fresh joy from the Lord. The poor will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Jesus finishes this little discourse with John's disciples and he he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Again, Bruner says it this way, these are kind words. Jesus does not shame John by saying something like, and blessed is the person who never doubts if I'm the Messiah. Words that would have hurt John because doubt was exactly what John was experiencing. Nor does Jesus here bless those who in discouraging situations glow with strong, vital faith. All such triumphal words would have been the worst possible pastoral counsel for John in his state. Instead, Jesus pitches his tune low, puts the cookies on a shelf John can reach, and promises in so many words, and God bless you, John, if you do not throw the whole thing over because I am a different kind of Messiah than you were expecting. I'm just going to be honest right now. I see in the culture around us this this dichotomy, and it's, it's actually pulling the church apart. There's many in our churches that are crying out for the church to rise up and, and stand against and, and work in power against the structures of government and evil and injustice and whatever, the, the structures of sin and evil in our society. And their idea, I think, is much like John's, that, that what we need to do is rise up and exert the power of God and exert the authority of Jesus. Jesus and the power of the gospel on the earth. And when Jesus came, he came as a man in humility who walked beside the brokenhearted, who lowered himself and humbled himself. He walked in gentleness, in mercy, in kindness, and in peace. And John is sitting there rotting in prison, waiting for the deliverer of the people of Israel to come and destroy the very evil structures that have put him in prison. And he's going, Jesus, I I thought that this would turn out different. Maybe even John thought that Jesus would be breaking him out of prison and dismantling the structures of evil government and Roman occupation over Israel. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm sorry, John. I don't want you to be offended by me because how I operate in the world is different than what you want or what you expected. And in the same way, I think Jesus in our day is saying, blessed are those who aren't offended by how I operate today. I think in a very real way, we need to just pause 
and we need to actually release Jesus from our expectations of how we expect him to operate in our life. We need to stop and release Jesus from the expectation of what we want him to do and how we want him to carry that out and when we want that to be accomplished by. We need to repent for expecting Jesus to act in a certain way in our life. So have you, in this last year, been experiencing disappointment and doubt Maybe even like John, maybe even you've been offended in this last year because Jesus hasn't showed up in your life in the way you hoped he would. Let's just be honest. Can we just be honest together? Maybe you're grieving great disappointment because Jesus hasn't showed up in your life the way you hoped he would, the way that you pictured he would. When you began praying about this thing, when you began crying out to God for this thing, when you began, you know, renewing your commitment to read and study his word, uh, you had a, an idea in your mind, a picture of how things should look and how you hoped them to be, and Jesus has not answered that picture, and it's grown in you a disappointment and a doubt, and maybe even in some of you a resentment. Maybe even some of you are resenting a part of the body of Christ that is not responding in the way that you want or agree with. On both sides of this chasm we find ourselves in, people are resenting other followers of Jesus for not walking in the way that they expect them to or the way that they are projecting Jesus to have expected us to walk. When we dive into Matthew, we discover this repeated invitation of Jesus. And that repeated invitation is for those who are weary and burdened. This is Jesus saying, I have come for those who are weary and burdened. I did not come for the strong and for the healthy. I did not come for those who think that they can rule and reign in their own strength, who think that they have all of the skills and assets and tools necessary for life. I came for the broken and the hurting. I came for those who are suffering and they have no way out. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Bonnard says it this way in his commentary on Matthew, come to me, all you who are fatigued and overwhelmed. Martin Luther said it this way, what a strange invitation this is, for in it Jesus is saying, in effect, my kingdom is a hospital for invalids. In Matthew, and the reason we're diving into this is Matthew gives us the practical tools for how to walk and live in the way of Jesus, how to enter into the rest of Jesus, how to take the yoke of Jesus. In Matthew, we see that it is the needy to whom Jesus is constantly addressing himself and for whom he is always there. Just look at the Beatitudes, we'll get there in Matthew 5. Matthew points us toward Jesus as the fulfillment of the deepest truths found in Scripture. Psalm 145, the Lord helps the fallen 
and lifts those bent beneath their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope and you give them their food as, you, as they need it. Jesus, in Matthew's eyes, is the fulfillment of the deepest truths of Hebrew scripture that characterize God as the one who comes near the lowly and burdened, who comes near the suffering, who comforts those who mourn. In Matthew's eyes, Jesus is the embodiment of the Lord that helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. Our problem is that we can read that, but so many of us have never truly experienced that in our life. And my hope and prayer is that as we journey through Matthew, together we will not only hear the words of Jesus, but learn from Jesus how to enter into the reality of Jesus. Jesus' invitation, again, Bruner, says this, Jesus' invitation goes out to all those for whom life has become a grind, for whom existence is laborious, to those in a word from whom the juice has gone out of life and all that's left is the rind. Jesus' heart goes out to them. These people are serious but discouraged. They want to be good, to please God, and to help people, but they feel quite selfish, quite up to the task, quite inadequate, and finally they feel like failures. I don't know if any of that describes your life, but if any of it does, you can know as we read from Matthew's gospel that the invitation of Jesus is to those who aren't healthy, but who know they're sick, know they need help in life. That yoke was a piece of equipment. It was a work instrument. A couple of points on the yoke for you. Number one, it was a piece of equipment, a work instrument. Number two, the truth is we are already living under a yoke, and it's the culture that we live in. It is uh, society around us placing it on. It is our own expectations. for our, It's our own vision for our own life. There's a culture of evil and sin that permeates the world from the kingdom of darkness, and that is a yoke that is adding to your weariness, burden, and affliction. Jesus doesn't offer a yoke. He offers his yoke, his way of living. Number three, a yoke was equipment that was teamed with oxen together. And in this way, Jesus is saying, I'm offering to walk through life as your team mate. And in Matthew, we see him saying, listen to what I'm saying and watch how I live. See how I do that. That's the picture of those oxen walking together. Jesus' invitation to be yoked with him is, this, is him saying, listen to what I'm saying. Watch how I live and see how I do it. This is what we're going to begin to step into in the Gospel of Matthew. Number four, the yoke was not a sitting instrument. It was a walking instrument. The emphasis for Jesus is not on inactivity. It's not Jesus just taking all of our problems from us. It's actually on walking with us. And Jesus' yoke, if you want to know what his yoke is, it's his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Bruner says it this way, Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount will develop in us a balanced way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we've been living he continues, I myself will teach you with my teaching and doing. That's how he's uh, paraphrasing Jesus' 
responding. Or he says, Jesus is saying, take my sermon on the mount and the miracles I've done for you and let me speak to you through them. In this sense, Jesus is saying, take my word and my works upon you and let me be your personal teacher through them. When Jesus offers us his yoke, he offers us what we might think we need least, which is more work to do. You might be going, what I need most is a vacation. What I need most is a better bed. What I need most is to escape and to get away. But what Jesus offers us is even better than that. He offers us the most restful gift we can ever have. And what he offers us is a new way to carry life. You don't need a holiday. You don't need to escape. What you and I need from Jesus is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear our responsibilities, a life that is not just overwhelmed by the burdens and weights that we carry, but a new way to carry those things that are currently crushing us down. This is the invitation of Jesus. When we listen to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and we begin to see his pattern of living and we begin to not just listen to what he said, but actually live the way he lives, we will find in Jesus a better way to live. This is the invitation for Jesus and Matthew lays it out. That's why the early church was so passionate about it. Matthew builds on the entirety of Scripture where so many times, Exodus 33, the Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses. I will give you rest and everything will be fine for you. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. Jeremiah 31, 25, for I've given rest to the weary and joy to the sorrowing. Ezekiel 34, I myself will tend my sheep and give them a place to lie down in peace, says the sovereign Lord. I will search for my lost ones who strayed away and I will bring them safely home again. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. This is the gospel of Jesus, King Jesus, that Matthew brings us into. And so my my hope for us over the next number of weeks is that we will not only begin to hear the words of Jesus, but begin to know how to enter into the life of Jesus, how to partner with him and begin in reality to allow Jesus to teach us a new way to carry life. So here's your assignment. I want you this week to read the first four chapters of Matthew. If you get it done, read them again. Read the first four chapters of Matthew and begin to enter into the gospel of Matthew. I'm praying that this week you are filled with strength as you are reminded of Jesus, that he draws near to those who are weary and burdened, that his invitation is not to give you a holiday from life, but actually to teach you how to carry life in a new way. My prayer for you is that you would actually experience the reality of Jesus in a new way. My encouragement to you is to get honest with him this week in releasing your disappointments, your expectations of how you've expected him to work and move and be in your life. Release them to him. 
Release those things to him and invite him to teach you to walk with you in a new way in life. I hope you have an amazing week. I can't wait till next week when we start in on chapter one and we look at the doctrine of God. If we want to understand how Jesus actually lived, we have to begin at the beginning to understand what Jesus actually believed about God as we have seen in the gospel of Matthew. It is going to be amazing. Have an awesome week.